We came to Kyoto to find new ways to bridge our differences. In doing so, however, we must not waver in our resolve. Australia will more than play its part to address climate change, but we'll do it in a practical and balanced way, in full knowledge of the economic consequences for our nation. Our efforts to protect biodiversity itself will exceed, will exceed the requirements of the treaty. Hello and welcome back to Barely Getting By the Long 1990s. I'm Chloe Ward and I'm Emma Shortis. So we're very lucky here at Barely Getting By HQ to have Emma on hand to take us on a tour of the environment and environmentalism in the 1990s. Previously on the podcast, we've discussed Emma's research into the Antarctic Treaty and the efforts, the successful efforts to protect Antarctica from mining, which culminated in the early 1990s. So we're kind of going to widen the lens here a bit and talk about what was going on more generally. So, Emma, how, do we, how, how does the 90s start from the perspective of the environment and from the perspective of environmentalists? Well, I think it starts actually from a, a very long perspective, quite literally, because the decade actually opens on Valentine's Day in in February of 1990. Voyager 1, which is a a NASA, I guess, um, space probe, is that what you call it, Um, is out in the solar system. It's gone now, by now it's past Neptune, so it's 6 billion kilometres away. And in the, the, at the very beginning of 1990, it actually turns around, which it was never supposed to do. But Carl Sagan, that famous scientist, um, had the idea that Voyager should turn around and take a picture of Earth from out behind Neptune. And the resulting pictures, um, Carl Sagan dubbed the pale blue dot, because what you see is the kind of vastness of space, I suppose, and and teeny tiny little Earth in this kind of shaft of light that's, you know, Earth is no bigger than a pixel. So it's this kind of stunningly beautiful picture that's released to open the decade. And I think it's really... Um, you know, it's kind of cheesily symbolic because it's the culmination of, of all of these pictures of Earth that we've had from space, starting with Earthrise in 1968, which of course is that important year that we keep going back to. But it's, I think Pale Blue Dot is a kind of culmination of, of decades of planetary thinking, of getting people to think about the Earth as a system, um, but also as a really vulnerable system, as kind of a lone potentially alone in the universe and and special and unique. So I think that's kind of the the attitude that environmentalism comes to the new decade with. To me, it underscores our responsibility to deal more kindly with one another and to preserve and cherish the pale blue dot, the only home we've ever known. Okay, so the environmental movement is coming to this full of promise. Um, We have that iconic victory, which you've researched previously in the Antarctic Treaty. What what else was going on in that space? Well, you're right. So there's Antarctica, of course, but 
the environmental movement, I think, is is kind of full of promise at the start of the decade, and not just because of Antarctica, but because of a whole bunch of big successes in the lead up to the 1990s. So there's the ban on commercial whaling in the kind of second half of the 1980s. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change is established in 1998. There's an agreement to ne- negotiate a framework convention on climate change the year after. Then there's the Montreal Protocol, which is the one that regulates the use of CFCs. So it's trying to address the hole in the ozone layer and then Antarctica a couple of years after that so so there's this kind of string I guess of, of victories for the environmental movement and there's a, largely a kind of bipartisan consensus around environmental action to the point where George Bush senior who as we know is is president of the US at the beginning of the decade he actually calls himself the environmental president so it seems like kind of everyone's on the same page and, and we're very much talking about, I think, Francis Fukuyama's idea about the decade being about the kind of technical solving of environmental problems. So everybody's kind of got this idea that we've got to work to, to fix our environment and look after our environment. And there's a bipartisan consensus that this is how we're going to do it. Yes. And I suppose that's a, it's also important not to forget, and I think this is something we'll come to later in the podcast, that this kind of bipartisan consensus and this idea that the environment is a technical is is a technical problem that's waiting to be solved that is still something that has come off the back of politics so you've spoken about greenpeace which i think certainly is one of the movements that kind of dominates my childhood memory of the 1990s and what environmentalism meant yeah and i, I think that's right and, and greenpeace is kind of coasting off those environmental successes that I mentioned because of course they're involved in I think in the achievement of all of them um, not the least of which is Antarctica that I've, I've spoken about before but there is I guess this kind of um, joy at those at those successes but also that you know they've managed to get the the Republican president of the United States to call himself the environmental president so there is I think this idea that we're kind of um, you know it's that idea of marching forward on the on the path of progress when it comes to the environment so that you know, history has also ended when it's come to these kind of questions and we're just kind of solving these technical problems on on the international stage. Um, But that idea, I think that that kind of consensus, that joy, that idea that we, you know, we all understand that we live on this tiny, unique, vulnerable, little pale blue dot, um, all of that is kind of shot to pieces really early on in the decade, in, in 1992 specifically. We come to Rio prepared to continue America's unparalleled efforts to preserve species and habitat. And let me be clear, our efforts to protect biodiversity itself will exceed, will exceed the requirements of the treaty. So in 1992, there's a huge United Nations Conference on Environment and Development, is its official title, held in Rio de Janeiro, and it's it's dubbed the Earth Summit. So this is a really important summit because um, it's the it's 20 years after the first UN Environment Summit, which was held in Stockholm in 1972, and there's. I guess, huge build up to this conference because of all those victories that I've talked about and this kind of consensus about environmentalism and and also a lot of pressure, I think, on the governments of the world to act on environment. Everything sort of seems to be leading up to this point, to this conference at Rio. This is kind of when 
we're going to make huge progress when it comes to the environment and specifically in relation to climate change. So the first United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change is opened for signature at Rio. And, and you know, environmentalists, diplomats, business people, NGOs, they all descend on, on Rio and there's a lot of joy and excitement. But what happens, like with a lot of UN conferences, you know, related to the environment and other things, is it very quickly becomes apparent that things are going to get bogged down. The the consensus that everybody had hoped for is not going to appear. So the UN, the Convention on Climate Change is ratified by the United States and 150 plus other countries, but it's kind of widely viewed as being watered down, particularly by the United States, um, to the point where it becomes kind of almost meaningless. And negotiations around all of those issues, not just climate change, um, become, I guess, kind of lost in disagreements between the rich industrialised countries like the United States and developing nations. So we see this, um, I guess, the kind of re-emergence of this argument about who is responsible, who has to pay and where responsibility lies. You know, does it lie with industrialised countries who are largely responsible for the environmental destruction that we're seeing? Or does it lie with developing nations who, you know, are going to be forced, I suppose, to follow a different path of development that doesn't rely on fossil fuels and that kind of environmental destruction? So Rio, in the end, is, I think, pretty devastating for the environmental movement. Okay. So what you're introducing there are a lot of a lot of themes that are still recurring in environmental debates. I'm thinking particularly of that apparent and I think I think that tension between developing and developed nations which I think is quite usefully exploited especially by developed nations in climate rhetoric these days. The the climate the climate summit that I always think of when I think about 1990s environmentalism is Kyoto, which took place five years later in 1997. Where does that fit in, in your, I guess, this imaginary path from Rio to our present catastrophe? Yeah, look, I'm not surprised that you remember Kyoto in 1997 because that is a really significant conference. And it's also because nothing really happens between Kyoto in 97 and, and Rio in 1992. There's a series of conferences, but nothing you know nothing is really agreed on we're still sort of bogged down in these um similar arguments so we get to kyoto in 1997 though and we do actually see some progress so there's protracted negotiations again but kyoto is different because it actually manages to come up with the first international agreement that sets out cuts to global greenhouse emissions and it actually commits industrialized nations in particular to specific and legally binding, you know, as much as international law can be legally binding, it it commits them to reductions in emissions of six different greenhouse gases. So, so it's really significant in that sense in that we've managed to get past this stalemate that emerged at Rio. It's signed, the agreement is signed by the United States, you know, amongst huge scenes of, of jubilation. And I think that's probably part of the reason that we remember it because it was there was a huge celebration. It's seen as this big breakthrough that could, you know, change the trajectory of the world when it comes to climate change. And it's successfully negotiated in part because of really critical leadership from the United States, you know, so as much as George Bush called himself the environmental president, by the time we get to Kyoto, we have a different administration. We have really significantly an an environmentalist for vice president, who is, of course, Al Gore. The United States remains firmly committed to a strong binding target 
that will reduce our own emissions by nearly 30% from what they would otherwise be. A commitment as strong or stronger than any we have heard here from any country. And he's crucial in break, breaking and negotiating stalemate at Kyoto. I think, and I think without his efforts um, during those negotiations, the Kyoto Protocol probably would have died earlier than it did, which I guess leads to the next question, of course, which, you know, is that we do know that Kyoto died eventually anyway. Yeah, so how did it die, Emma? Well, I think a lot of um, Australians at least would suspect that it was us that killed Kyoto. You know, maybe that's why we also remember Kyoto here, why that's so important to us. Um, our Prime Minister, John Howard, did refuse to ratify the agreement. So Australia, like the United States, we, we signed Kyoto um, at the time, but then Howard, late, Howard later refused to ratify it. So signing, you know, you sort of sign up for an in-principle agreement, but then ratifying means actually putting it into practice. Um, and we had already been widely criticised before that because during the negotiation process, Australia took a really hard line. We, we were really difficult um, and actually managed to get huge concessions. Australia will more than play its part to address climate change, but we'll do it in a practical and balanced way in full knowledge of the economic consequences for our nation. Yeah, Emma, can you tell me more about those concessions? Because I know that's something that gets dragged up all the time when we talk about Australia's poor performance in relation to Kyoto and also in relation to the later Paris Agreement. But I think it's also something that doesn't... It gets brought up a lot, but it doesn't necessarily get explained very clearly. So could you spell out some of those concessions that were made in 97? Yeah, sure. Look, I think it is confusing, and especially because um, conservative governments now here in Australia keep bragging about us meeting our Kyoto Protocol targets. Um, And that's important because our Kyoto Protocol targets are kind of ridiculous. So the concessions that Australia got in 1997 were were massive. Australia was actually allowed under the agreement to increase our emissions by 8% above 1990 levels. So everyone else agreed to decrease their emissions compared to 1990 levels, you know, the European Union by about the same equivalent by about 7 or 8%, I think. Um, so we're allowed to increase our emissions under this agreement, but we also got um, right at the last minute, the Australian negotiator insisted on the insertion of this clause into the agreement that got called the Australia clause because they basically said, we're not going to sign it unless you put this in the agreement. And that was to include land clearing in the calculations of emissions. So the Australian negotiators knew that land clearing had decreased dramatically in Australia. So if it got included in the calculations, that would allow us to actually significantly increase our emissions in other areas and still meet this 8% target. So it's basically insane that, that we get these concessions and a specific clause, you know, named after us because we were so horrible during these negotiations. And in the end, after all of that, after getting our own clause, after all of these concessions were made by industrialised countries to get us on board, Howard refuses to ratify it anyway. So it's pretty, like, as far as diplomatic um, moves go, it's, it's like, a pretty dog act, I have to say. Um, Emma's the only person who can see my face right now because we're recording via Teams, and I think... I, I wish that anyone listening could see it too, because I suspect it's telling telling a story. One thing that that really does bring to mind is again this idea that the '90s were a time of 
rational, well-intentioned governance, you know, this idea of throwback democracy that I keep coming back to in my mind. I mean, it does say a lot that our government was, our government was acted in such bad faith in what were really critical negotiations over the future of the planet. But Australia, of course, is, is in the end, at the end of the day, a middling power and as I understand it, it's the US that killed Kyoto. It, it absolutely is. And, and I think that's it's a really important point you make there, Chloe, about kind of throwback democracy, because Australia was pretty, at the time, was pretty transparent, I think, about, you know, not acting in good faith in, in these negotiations. And that is in contrast to the United States, where, you know, Al Gore is, is working really hard to break this negotiating stalemate. You know, the, the Clinton administration is really committed to this agreement. Um so they're kind of doing this, I guess, this technocratic government, this like kind of rational actor, um, you know, it's in everybody's best interest to come to this agreement. They sign the agreement, of course, in Kyoto, but then they come back home and find opposition on home soil. So the United States Congress is really, I think, what kills Kyoto in the end. The US Senate, after the agreement is signed, after the Clinton administration has signed Kyoto, they actually pass a resolution um that passed with a 95 to zero vote, basically saying we oppose this agreement, the senators oppose the agreement, and they're using arguments that we are very familiar with today, um, saying that the agreement is unfair and that they can't support it until developing countries are forced to, you know, share the burden of, of dealing with climate change. Again, in Australia, of course, we're very familiar with these arguments. So what that means is that Clinton has really no choice but to say that he's not going to submit the treaty to the Senate to, for what's called advice and consent. So for the US to ratify the treaty, to ratify the protocol and, and kind of put it into law, you have to get consent from the Senate. The Senate has to vote to, to ratify it and the Senate is clearly going to vote it down. So instead of that embarrassment, Clinton just doesn't, he just never puts it to the Senate, I suppose, Um so what that means, I suppose, in 1997, you know, as we know, the United States is now the sole superpower. It's the world's biggest economy and also the biggest emitter, and they're refusing to ratify this agreement. So, so Kyoto is kind of broken, I suppose, by the United States. And then if we fast forward to 2001 and we have President George Bush Jr. in the White House, who is definitely not an environmental president like his daddy, um, he says that the United States no longer th- sees itself as bound by Kyoto at all in any sense, you know, even even though they have signed this agreement in principle. So it's really from then, from 2001, it's another sort of decade and a half before we, any see, we see any progress again in, in international climate negotiations. Okay, so on hearing about that 94-0 vote in the US Senate, my face did tell another story again. I think the only thing that I'd kind of maybe maybe push you on a bit, Emma, there is this idea about... The, the rhetoric around developing and developed nations, because I do think that in recent years that's taken on or that's been kind of recast, especially in Australia, because I think what's actually happening is that a lot of, you know, bad faith conservatives are using, you know, developing nations claims and you know, their, their right to pursue a you know a fossil fuel path as part of their political argument. So I do think that the ground's shifted slightly there. 
Yeah, actually, I, I mean, I think you're right. I, I certainly think that there are, there is the bad faith argument that, you know, who are we to, to stop developing nations from emitting as much as they need to, like, to provide um, electricity for, for their citizens, and et cetera, et cetera, which is, of course, a bad faith argument because it suggests that the only way to do that, the only way to pull people out of poverty is to burn huge amounts of fossil fuels. And we've seen that recently, I think, you know, with arguments about us selling coal, selling our coal to India, that we have to do that because, you know, India... India needs that to develop and if we don't sell it to them somebody else is going to anyway so I, I certainly think you're right that those arguments have been twisted but I think we also see the genesis of them in kind of 1992 and earlier when these arguments between developing countries who are, who are making very good faith arguments about you know you have developed you have used these resources it's you it's you that has destroyed the planet not us so you have to take some responsibility and you also have a responsibility to assist us in in both protecting the environment but also pulling ourselves out of poverty you know the poverty which was created of course like by in large part by colonialism the colonialism of western nations so no i, I completely agree with that and i think that perhaps the the biggest factor in that change has been the rise of widespread and ever increasingly cheap renewable energy sources. And, you know, I, I think that that argument around, well, if India, you know, India has to take, get coal from somewhere, that's not necessarily true when you think that, that developing economies like India's and China's, they themselves are increasingly committed to a renewable path. That's true. And that's certainly, you know, to go back to, to one of the most important negotiators of, of Kyoto, Al Gore is constantly saying that, um, you know, renewables are the path forward. That is the rational way to go, that we don't need to burn fossil fuels and development can still happen. Economic growth can still happen, you know, exactly as we are accustomed to. It's just that we should be using renewable energy instead of fossil fuels. And speaking of Al Gore, that most famous of 90s environmentalists, we will be dedicating the next instalment of this episode of Belly Bye to Al Gore's meteoric rise from environmentalist to vice president and the crashing of his aspirations come the 2000 presidential election. Belly Bye is supported and produced by RMIT University. Original theme music is by Stuart Cullen. <laughs>